Forge family. Uh, about two weeks, three weeks ago, we began the book of Daniel. And in it, we saw that Judah had been plunging into greater and greater darkness. The prophets of God kept crying out, calling the people to repent. But the people of Judah chose to believe the positive message of the false prophets, the counterfeit prophets. See, they would say, no judgment is due for disobedience to Yahweh. They would say, no promised captivity is on the way. Yahweh is not so much fun to worship as the other gods, etc. Judah had been a tribute-paying vassal of the Assyrians for 100 years. And when the Assyrian and Egyptian armies were wiped away, they were crushed at Carchemish in 606 B.C., the Babylonians who won, they immediately came south to mop up that vassal city, Jerusalem, and all the nation of Judah. Now, Jerusalem did not yield to the surrounding armies. They were besieged. They, did not, they didn't give up. and uh, The Babylonians had to break the walls. Okay? <clears throat> and, uh, and twice more, uh, in, over 10 years, uh, those walls were thrown down and crushed. And finally, in, in uh, 586, uh, you know, finally, the walls were torn down. Gates were burned with fire. The major houses, the big houses still standing, they were torched. And the temple of, of uh, Solomon, which was largely made out of cedar, you know, you just throw a match at it and it goes poof. Okay? It was burned to the ground. So earlier, uh, about, about 20 620 B.C., there was a young man of royal bloodlines that was born in Jerusalem. His name was Daniel, and that name, the name means God is my judge. And he and other young men from the court were swept up and carried off as captives to the city of Babylon. And en and, route, and they had been selected out to serve the king. They were specifically targeted. There was probably a team that went distinctly to that region of the city and found out who, who was related to who and said, you, 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 and you get in line. Okay? And we, in the last century, we've had armies do that. Okay? In any event, when he arrives in Babylon, he's informed he's going to serve the king. Now, the Babylonians copied what Egypt did and what Assyria did. They took the finest mines that they could that they could capture and put them to work. Okay, from the Chaldeans, now they were the ones who were, were from su- south of Babylon, okay? Uh, <clears throat> from them came the precise orbits of the planets and the stars, and their learning encompassed the vast library of cuneiform clay tablets that had been captured from the defeated king, uh, Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. Libraries, knowledge, and power went hand in hand in Babylon. The flow here of the book of Daniel points to God's oversight, even over his people in captivity. His sovereignty is readily displayed. That's a now word here across our country. Let's pray. O sovereign Lord God, you warned Judah repeatedly, but they turned away from you. Then you set in motion your judgment and your redemption plan for your people. Lord God, we 
give you praise for lessons from the past to equip us for what we face today. You are ever working. We lift our hands and our hearts to say to you, thank you, we honor you. Show us your ways this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me to chapter 1, verse 1 of Daniel. How, how many of you have studied through the book of Daniel ever before? I mean, you've probably read through it, but, you know, study through it, okay? Good. Correct me along the way here. <laughs> so, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So recall that in the ancient Near East, when armies won, won, won devastating victories, it was broadly assumed across cultures when they heard that news that the God of the weaker party that had lost the war had been crushed and, and the powerful God had arisen and, and the weaker God had to give up his people, his armies, his cities, his riches, his livestock, the works. Okay? It was entirely spiritualized when you went to war. For Nebuchadnezzar to breach the walls of Jerusalem, which was unprecedented. No, no army had ever done that. Okay? And then to strip the temple of worship articles and out of Solomon's temple. Uh, that was for the watching world clear evidence of the utter defeat of Yahweh. And breached walls and temple artifacts were repeated twice more. There were two more collapse, you know, two more invasions, you know, besieged Jerusalem. God's people were taken into captivity and God's power was useless, or so it may have seemed. But who foretold of the Babylonian captivity? The crushing of Judah and Jerusalem. Who kept saying through his prophets, this is coming, repent, turn away from this? It was Yahweh himself. So Yahweh here in the book of Daniel is known as Adonai. Okay, Adonai is a word descriptive of God, if you will. Owner, ruler, and sovereign. It is this God that engineered the fall of Assyria and Egypt. And the, and the judgment on his people, Judah. He's not been asleep. He's not been bored. He's not been uninterested. But rather, he's exhibiting his sovereignty. And it was he who gave Jerusalem and Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. As to the temple implements on deposit in the treasury of Bel, okay, the, the god of Nebuchadnezzar, that was just a temporary vault where those gold and silver implements of worship worship to God, to Adonai, to Yahweh. That's where they were kept safe for 70 years and were then returned back to Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that at the time. <clears throat> Verses 3 to 5 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. 
Any mothers-in-law? No, any mothers-in-law? You, you need a, a description of what you want for your daughter? Anyway, okay, there it is. That's what you want. <laughs> well, that's going to appear in Elite Out Education materials very shortly. Okay, there you go. Okay, and Nebuchadnezzar ordered this chief of officials, his name was Ashpenaz, to teach those young men the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. <clears throat> so this was a multinational dragnet, if you will, of young men from other cultures and other cities and other nations and other, uh, they worshiped other gods, etc. Okay, but they were gathered for the sole purpose of being equipped to serve in the Babylonian court. The list of qualifications to be accepted into the three-year school of Babylon, uh, their, the literature and the language courses were, young men were have no physical deformity or defect. The problem is, Isaiah chapter 39, Isaiah said, uses the word saris, okay? And the word saris is for powerful officials, okay? But in Isaiah 39, he says, Young men of Judah will be saris in Babylon. Okay, here's, here's the, the twist in this. The word saris speaks of those powerful officials, and, and there was one previously mentioned in Scripture. Do you remember who that was that Joseph served? His name was Potiphar. Okay? Potiphar bought him on the, on the slave block, but Potiphar was also head of the secret service for the pharaoh. Okay, and, but he was described in Hebrew as saris. Okay, in other texts, that same word, saris, is the word for eunuch or someone who's impotent. So you have to, you have to interpret by context. All right. Now, given the context here of Isaiah's prophecy and the realities of serving in an ancient palace... And further, looking at the text for any wife or children for Daniel, I believe that part of the captivity punishment for the choice young men was castration. It's just it's part of the package when you go, you go to serve in, in, a, in a palace. Now, um, immediately there are those who say, wait a minute, there can be no physical deformity or crippling defect. Well, then he couldn't possibly have been castrated. Perhaps. When you see Daniel, take him away privately <laughs> and ask him. Okay? All right? But these were supposed to be attractive young men, able to display their intelligence in all the realms of the ancient Near East wisdom. In all, and they, and they, could, they could use what they knew. They could integrate it. They didn't just know it. They could do something with it. And the whole point of this thing was, ultimately, they were to be young men who would be respectful, clear-headed, confident, and on point when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> now, this was a three-year crash course, uh, how to govern over the Babylonian responsibilities that were going to be handed to them as part of court, how to counsel the king, 
and how to become a refined courtier. Verse 5 says that the king wanted this new class of future crown counselors to be treated at court uh, just as if they were members at that very moment. They were to be served what he ate and drank what was in his goblet. Now that was rich fare. Okay, and we have some records, some cuneiform tablets. They're not real clear, but essentially, apparently, almost every meal in that part of the ancient Near East included some form of barley. Roasted, boiled, you know, taken from underneath the roast sort of thing. And it was with some oil. So you have some barley that has some rich oil on top of it. Then a range of different poultry, fish, and meat. And multiples, multiples spread out, seasoned from fiery to mild. And then there'd be some vegetables. And then there'd be some breads. And then there'd be sweets, followed by copious quantities of wine. That's how the kings did it. Okay? So verse 6 and 7 points out the players, some of the choice young men of Judah that were thrust into the school of Babylon. We know Daniel, okay, and his name means God is my judge. Hananiah, okay, means his name means gift of the Lord, Mishael, who is God, and Azariah, the Lord helps. So then the commander of the officials assigned them all new names. This business of becoming Babylonian started on day one. You no longer have your name. You have this name. So Daniel was called Belteshazzar, which means protect his life and refers probably to the pinnacle deity, Bel. It's part of the Babylonian pantheon. To Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, which most likely meant the command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael was renamed Meshach, which meant who is what Aku is. Azariah was renamed Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. So Nebo and Nego and, and, Nab, uh, and Nabu, they're all, they're all variant spellings to the, the name Nabu, who was the number two um, god in the pantheon, the, the second greatest god in the pantheon. <clears throat> So both the Egyptians and the Babylonians had already done that. When, when Pharaoh Necho put great pressure on Jerusalem, he, he switched rulers. He changed names on the rulers. Same thing that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar does. He comes in, he says, you're out and you're in, and he changes the guy's name. So it, to the watching world, everybody knows that that man is serving a new master. Akin to seeing the big sign on the side of the building. Under new management. All right? Verse 8 begins with the court tales of Daniel and his willingness to stand apart, to stand alone, ready to serve the kings. And there were five of them. There were five rulers in his lifetime that, were, that came, and, uh, you know, and come in, in some senses, that Daniel had to come up in front of. But in reality, they came up in front of him. Okay, so he's ready for that. But ultimately, he answers to Adonai alone. But Daniel made up his mind, this verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice of food and with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So what is this defile thing? All right. Uh, why was he willing to, 
toss, get tossed out of the school of Babylon, okay, over food and drink. Well, if you were raised in a kosher family, that meant part of your diet did not include any unclean animals. No camels, no rats, no... Um, excuse me? Yeah, no pig, no horses. You know, it's like there's a long list of do not eat, okay? But when it came time to have supper, there, there were clean animals that you could choose from. They were cows and goats and uh, sheep and deer, etc. that they had cloven hooves. And the point was, when that animal was either uh, chosen or hunted down, he immediately was checked to see that that animal was whole, didn't have a growth on the underside, didn't have cankers, didn't have you know, strange stuff running out of its mouth, whatever it was. It had to be healthy. Okay, then it was, it was the, the, the blood was drained from that animal. First priority, get all the blood out. Blood was not used in kosher cooking, period. Think about it. How many cultures use blood in their cooking? Not kosher Hebrews, okay? And then you, the butcher comes, cuts up pieces, sends a piece to this house, piece to that house, piece over here. That piece of clean animal was then soaked in water for a considerable piece of, period of time to get the, all the remaining blood out of those tissues. <clears throat> the Babylonian palace diet would have fallen well outside of the kosher choices and protocols. Okay? Further, part of the rich diet for the king was the best wine. Now, wine is served in kosher households, right? But it has to be wine that's prepared with kosher protocols. The twist in Daniel's robes was that before the wine was poured out and shared around the table, that wine was poured out as a libation. It was spilled intentionally on an altar or on the ground and dedicated to other gods. <clears throat> now, Paul, in his writing to the Corinthians, notes that animals are being sacrificed in the, in the pagan temples around, around Corinth. And that animal, once sacrificed, goes off the altar, out the back door, thrown in a cart, down the, down the alleyway, and in the back door of the temple-owned butcher shop in the retail district. But the whole, the whole city understood, and they knew that had been offered to the idols first. And so Paul says, don't go there. Daniel finds himself in the same identical position. Daniel found the fact that you know, if he were to choose to eat the rich food and the drink from the king's table, that would render him complicit as an idol worshiper and ceremonially unclean before Adonai. But you say, Daniel... Come on, guy. You're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home. Jerusalem is, has been squashed. It's dust and rubble. Okay? We don't know anything about his parents. He may have become an orphan. Don't know. All right? To some of us from Judah, it sure feels like God has withdrawn. You know? And, and, and some of us say, God has failed us. What does a little diet change matter here, Daniel? But here in verse 8, we get to see a young man who answers first to Adonai. Not to acculturation, not to radical change of status, not to peer pressure or what anybody has to say. 
Here we're introduced to God's man, Daniel. Now, Daniel, verse 8, having made up his mind first is how the passage starts. He goes directly to Ashpenaz. Okay, he's chief of the court officials, and he asks for permission to not defile himself. Now, uh, such a request has probably been ultra rare or inconceivable. You know, the princess bride Sicilian inconceivable kind of thing. Okay? It just never happened. Who possibly would give up what was coming off the king's table? The ancient Near East was filled with recurrent warfare and collateral damage and drought and collateral damage, starvation and malnutrition here and there. And here's Daniel rejecting the best food rations in the kingdom. But in the court setting, to refuse the king's food would have been an insult to the king. So no one contravened the orders of the king, noted above in verse 5, on pain of death or worse. Now think about that. What's worse? No, I'm gonna, not, no we're not going there. There is worse. Okay. <clears throat> Verses 9 and 10. Ashpenaz responds to Daniel's request. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are of your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Now, where have we heard of favor from an official before in scripture? Yes, that's one. Yes, I was thinking, you know, you're ahead of me on Nehemiah. Joseph, okay, receives favor from the head jailer in prison in, in Egypt, okay? So this is not a one-off. There's multiple places where, you know, the, the pagans have compassion on and care for and open doors for those who serve God. Uh, I've been reading a, a commentary by Stephen Miller. I, I like him. He has a sense of humor. That helps when you're doing all this stuff, this ancient stuff. Uh, and he has this comment here that really applies right here. He says, God's common grace, which operates in the hearts of unbelievers, is exemplified here. Ashpenaz had a sense of goodwill and sympathy toward the young Jews under his care. Further, he had some compassion and some affection for them. He liked and respected them, but... He feared the king. His position and his life got put on the line. If the young men from Judah slumped in their performance and appearance relative to their peers from other nations, Ashpenaz would have to answer for that. But he's a smart boy. Next verse. Okay? Verse 13, 11 to 13. Here Daniel appeals to Melsar is in some texts. Melsar is Hebrew word for guard, overseer. We would say officer or dude or you know, what, whatever it was that you know, get somebody's attention that's supposed to be looking after you. Okay? And he'd been set by Ashpenaz over, over the care of these four young men of Judah. And Daniel said to the overseer, 
who the commander of officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let us, excuse me, then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servant according to what you see. Now, here you can see that Ashpenaz, you know, the, the head official in the court, okay, had uh, distanced himself from the problem. He put an air gap between whatever, Daniel's, whatever the decision was about Daniel and himself. If anybody was going down, it was going to be that guard, okay? Ashpenaz steps back and says, you're in charge. But he put a burr on the guy's ear to say, do what this young man tells you to do. So, Uh, Daniel asks the overseer to allow four young men of Judah to just eat vegetables and water. Another way to translate that is pulse, P-U-L-S-E, okay? And, and do it for 10 days and then be examined, you know, by in, the, in the presence of the peers who eat the rich king's diet. Pulse is a, is a stew. Pulse is or, or a thick soup or a stoop or how, whatever you want to label it. Okay, it's made out of barley and perhaps uh, cracked barley, cracked wheat, uh, lentils, beans, greens, etc. Uh, it's probably pretty close to minestrone. <laughs> okay, because it would have had some seasonings as well. Okay, uh, and he asks, "Let's do this for ten days." There's a possibility he got some bread. There's some bread that went along with the soup. Okay. This, uh, this also might be an option for some of you. Uh, instead of uh, 10 days of happy meals or, or uh, supersize me fast foods, not to mention bacon fat grits, hush puppies and ribs. Verses 14 and 16. So he listened to them in this manner, in this matter, and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the, de- of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold his choice food and wine that they were to, uh, that they were to drink and give them vegetables. So the pulse was easily prepared by kosher standards. And it was nourishing. The result of a simple cleansing diet for 10 days showed the four from Judah to be markedly better in, a, in outward appearance. Seeing the benefits to those he had in his charge, the overseer continued to supply Daniel and his friends with the elements of pulse to eat and water. And on the side, he got four extra portions of food off the king's table for he and his guard buddies. Now, you say, how can a low-calorie diet produce better fatness? The words used in the text, and appearance. Now, just consider what happens if you eat high-calorie everything. Meats, fish, poultry, grains, bread, sweets, vegetables, with copious amounts of wine to go wash it down. Over and over, three times a day. Twice. Twice a day. It's called... Too many toxins going in, 
Very little coming out. Okay? Your inner parts will be conflicted and your outer appearance will sag. So here's the first evidence of the wisdom and knowledge that was demanded of the young men in the school of Babylon. It, their choices, their wisdom, their knowledge had to be personally reflected before it can be used to affect regions and nations. The immediately following verse adds something to this theme. Verse 16 says, And as for these four youths, God, Adonai, gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. All right. Credit where credit is due. A vegetarian diet will not produce what God gave to those four men. Okay. The point was not to eat vegetables. The point was to remain undefiled before the Lord. And on this simple trial of a diet option, we see Daniel and his friends remaining faithful to Adonai first. They did not throw that requirement up to Ashpenaz or the overseer, but simply suggested a trial to let God shine. It is interesting that the name of Abednego appears in the Elephantine papyri. Okay, in the 5th century B.C., these were records kept by a Jewish military mercenary garrison on the island of Elephantine in, in Egypt, in way south, southern Nile River. Okay? But they kept their records. They kept meticulous, careful records on papyri. And there it is, Abednego. Not only did Adonai give great gifts to these young men in Babylon for service, he made them known abroad. As to Daniel's God-given skills as a dream interpreter, that puts him in Babylonian court, surrounded okay, by those who absolutely believed that their gods spoke through dreams. That last phrase in verse 16 helps set the stage for dream events yet to come in the book of Daniel. Verses 18 to 21 present the examination of each of the young men in the school of Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar at the end of three years of their study. Quote, Then at the end of days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And out of them, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the, the magicians and the conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So here you got vindication, preparation, and trust in God Almighty, the sovereign Lord. The four from Judah were examined and found to be the best of the school of Babylon, the best of the captives brought in from the nations. Okay, and the phrase, you know, ten times better, that's, that's idiomatic. It simply means they're the best, the brightest, they're brilliant, they're the most effective, they're amazing. It, it's a, you know, the, the stack metaphors, stack, stack descriptive words. Hmm. But who was arrayed around Daniel when he stood with the king? Okay, The text says 
Magicians. They're the hartom. Okay? That, that word has appeared in the scriptures before. Where were the magicians in scripture before? Pharaoh. Pharaoh had two of them. Jansais and Jambres. And what did they do? They countered the power of God through the rod of Moses with demonic power that made it look like what God could do. Okay? So they were hartom. <clears throat> Some of Babylon's magicians were just those who, who concentrated on, on carefully tracking orbits of planets, orbits of stars, and, and writing it on cuneiform clay tablets and trying to gain wisdom from seeing, watching the heavens. But part of the Babylonian magicians were those who were in touch with the spirit world and the pantheon of gods that they were worshipped. They employed dark rites and spells and counter spells uh, to put away evil things that were coming against their king. They studied omens and astrolo astrology. Yes, astrology. That's, that's zodiac stuff. Okay? And they offered up divination based upon the appearance of the liver in a slaughtered sheep. With them stood enchanters, conjurers, and necromancers, many who dabbled in and were slaves, if not you know, slaves and servants of darkness and occult practice. All right, Forge family. Most of the Western world seems to believe that they have left behind these workers of darkness. The rise in the 90s, 1990s, of neo-paganism reestablished their presence as a far-flung net across North America and the globe. Witchcraft, in its essence, is control. All you have to do is run your finger down the titles of movies and down a list of music listings to recover a perspective of the influence this wicked presence has. Unwise governments and businesses have drawn from that dark side, if you will, to give them insight if you will, demonic insight into the markets and, and onto global stages. Do not take the references to divination and sorcery lightly. It, it, it takes the armor of God and his discernment to unravel the skeins of the evil one who seeks to enslave us and remove the Lord and his church from view and influence. So last week, there was an article that popped up the Yahoo newsfeed. It says, here's tw 20 ways you're going to get COVID. Number one, family gatherings. Number two, church assembly. Now imagine who set that set of priorities when they distributed that list. An old daily vacation Bible school song is stuck in my mind. Got refreshed. And I went, oh yeah, I remember that. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. It's worth taking to heart. One last thing. Even though Daniel was castrated, his identity before the Lord was intact. Nothing shook him. His trust in Adonai protected and sustained him in his inner man. Some of us have had hard, even horrific things happen to us or around us. Okay? But are we standing for the king of kings? 
Are we able to be his representative in full, in full faith, before courts, bosses, professors, politicians, landlords, investors, tyrants, or any others who would sway and threaten or attempt to use us? Let's pray. Lord, we would dare to be a Daniel. Adonai, oh sovereign Lord, thank you for pointing us at what you were doing in Daniel's day. Lord, point us at what you're doing now. Give us the mind of Christ afresh and wisdom and discernment to take a stand for you. In Jesus' name, amen.